This message was recorded at Devoted, a Christ Central Festival for all the family. To find out more about Devoted, please visit devotedevent.org. But we have laid on for you fans. And I didn't do that. The uh, technical team are responsible for meeting your needs in that area. So we're really grateful for that. Thank you for giving up an hour on a very warm afternoon to come and talk about some of the practicalities of social action in the local church. This seminar was added in at the request of the central core team um, of Christ Central just to help us as activists and people on the ground Um, to discuss in more detail some of the practicalities of how things work and some of the challenges we face. So this hour seminar will consist of an initial presentation from me and then my colleague Natalie Williams, who works with me in Jubilee Plus, is going to make some comments after that, just add a few things in from her perspective, and then we're going to have some Q&A. Okay, so that's what we're going to do in the hour. We have... Um, a camera over there, which is, uh, I believe, live streaming this seminar to Ghana. Okay, at the request of the team leader there, Michael Okotia. Hello, Michael, um, who is our colleague and friend. And uh, he wanted to listen in on what we're discussing. Uh, so that's why we've got that camera um, over there. Now, um, I haven't got the projector operating, so I've given you... Um, a little handout, which are basically some slides I've used uh, for uh, this talk, both here and elsewhere. Um, because of the constraints of time, um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to focus on the fifth slide, bringing good news to the poor seven dimensions. Can you see that in the bottom left? That's basically what we're going to talk about today. So Natalie and I are part of a team called Jubilee Plus, Uh, Most of you are aware of of what that is, uh, a team set up by the wider New Frontiers family to help churches with social action. We started work in 2011, run national conferences, write books, do various training initiatives. We have some information in the hub um, if you want to find out more. But I'm not going to talk particularly about us as a team. Um, What I'm going to talk about uh, this afternoon are some of the things we've learned over uh, nearly a decade of working with churches across the country, because our team operates all over the country with different uh, spheres of New Frontiers and other denominational churches, advising, helping, partnering with different people as they increase their capacity in social action. And what I've summarized, which I'm going to present to you, is just seven things that I think are really, really important. So I'm going to go through these uh, with you briefly. Natalie will comment as she wishes, and then we'll talk about it. So the number one is conviction. Now, what I mean by conviction here is biblical conviction. Um, There's still a battle that goes on in the mind of many Christians as to the question, well, how important is it to care for marginalized people? Now, you might think, oh, well, that's obvious to you sitting here. Um, But strangely enough, it's not entirely obvious to everybody. Some people still default to the late 20th century view that it's the state's responsibility Um, or to the view that really it's people's own responsibility or the families, and um, the churches should only really be marginally involved in caring for the poor, particularly because we should be focusing on on just pure evangelism. So there is a biblical case that we need to 
make and remake and just make sure everybody's really clear about. Now, I'm not going to do that extensively now, and many of you will be completely convinced, but I'll just give you one snapshot from the New Testament that I find really persuasive. Um, uh, And it comes from Galatians chapter 2, which is a passage that's quite often been quoted, but not uh, always looked at in much detail. In Galatians 2 verses 9 and 10, um, Paul comments on a meeting that he was called to with his colleague Barnabas, and they met with Peter and some of the other apostles. Now, there was uh, an issue going on that Paul was operating uh, in one geographical area with Gentiles in the, in the Asia Minor, Turkey and Greece, that sort of area. Uh, Peter was operating in Jewish communities and planting churches in an area in Israel called Judea, principally. Um, and, and someone had accused Paul of preaching a different gospel and corrupting the gospel. So Peter convened a meeting and said, Paul, we really need to get together to make sure we're on the same page. So they had this meeting and they realized they were on the same page. No problem about preaching the gospel. And the summary that Paul gives um, in verse 10 of Galatians 2, having said that they agreed, they gave them the right hand of fellowship, everything was fine. Then we have a really surprising verse in Galatians 2 verse 10 where It says, all that they, Peter and his colleagues, all that they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I'd been eager to do all along. So suddenly into this discussion about gospel preaching and presentation comes a discussion about the poor. Well, why? There's a reason. Because Peter, operating in Jewish communities, the Jews had the Old Testament, the law of Moses, a belief in God knew that those Jewish believers naturally understood it was God's heart to care for the poor, and they were doing it in the Jewish communities. His concern for Paul was in the Gentile communities. Would these Gentiles have the same instinct when they became Christians? Because they didn't have any Old Testament background. They had no culture of charity in the ancient Roman world. And it was basically every man for himself, to put it very simply. So Peter's fear was that there would be preaching the gospel without caring for the poor amongst the Gentiles, which would be inauthentic to the fundamentals of Christianity. He said, Paul, you're not doing that, are you? Paul said, don't worry. We're caring for the poor. In a situation where up to 50% of people in any given community in the ancient world would be economically very, very vulnerable at subsistence level or worse. So there's a biblical conviction issue now. I don't want to spend a lot of time on it, but it is important. Secondly, there is an issue of calling. God calls churches and individuals to particular initiatives. There's a divine element in this and there's a specific element of God's calling that is often unique to a particular situation now how does this calling come about in my opinion there are three things that are often influential one is personal experience of church members church members can sometimes have had experiences that give them a compassion towards a particular group in their society secondly 
There can be a community circumstance. Something happens in your community that makes you think, aha, we need to do that. Thirdly, there can be a prophetic leading. God speaks to us about a particular issue or project or priority. But I'm emphasizing the issue of calling because you know as well as I do, we can't do everything. And we'd be foolish to try. So how do we decide the things that we should be prioritizing in one church? That's a really interesting question, isn't it? Maybe personal experience, maybe community circumstance, maybe prophetic leading will guide us. Maybe we will look at some of the gifts of the people in the church. Maybe it'll be related to our building. Maybe it'll be related to a key organization we have friendship with in the town. Maybe it'll be uh, to do with some social development that takes place in our town or city that's, uh, that just draws attention to a particular need. But a successful working amongst people in need has to be based on a sense of calling that most people in the church really hold. They really believe we should be doing this. Would you agree with that? It's important, isn't it? We had an example in our church where the son of some members of the church at the time was killed by a car accident in the road outside his house. Very great tragedy. And that led a member of the church to consider the needs of children who have been bereaved because his siblings were in great distress. And so out of that community circumstance came a child bereavement service, which we now run, working with a number of different schools. It came out of a circumstance. Something happened that made us think. We need conviction. We need calling. And what seems very obvious, we need a heart for people. Now, looking at you, you may think, well, that's about the most obvious thing you could possibly say. But experience has suggested to me that the intentionality of people to care for people in need is often diminished with the experience of the problems of the process. So people start idealistically and then they get their fingers burnt or something goes wrong or they get burnt out or they feel under pressure or they don't like what's going on and they give up. Now, in the first book that Natalie and I co-wrote called The Myth of the Undeserving Poor, we addressed this issue. We found it to be very, very common that actually... Christians can sometimes, subconsciously even, divide people in need into worthy people and unworthy people. People we think deserve help and people we think don't deserve help. And we have to be very careful about allowing that thinking to get hold of us because it will gradually compromise our capacity to be able to deal with people in need. You can read the book if you haven't. You might find it 
interesting. Sometimes the process of getting involved reveals deeper social prejudices that were beneath the surface, but they come to the surface once you start getting involved. And so our belief is that God is always doing a work in our heart to teach us true compassion. That's going on in my heart to this day. And I guess it might be in yours, but it needs to go on in your church as a community. I wonder whether you're aware that, you know, there's so often prejudices below the surface. Prejudices we wouldn't formally admit to, but we might have a racial prejudice. We might have a class prejudice. We might have a prejudice against homeless people. We may stereotype them without even realizing it. I have lost count of the number of people who've come up to me at different conferences and events and said to me, I read your first book, The Myth of the Undeserving Poor. I've got a confession to make. Can I make this confession to you? It really spoke to me. I really realized how prejudiced I was about dot, dot, dot. People just kept coming up and speaking to me. And also, I think Natalie would say the same thing, just coming and saying, the book just struck a chord. Because in our culture, we're used to the media doing something which is technically called othering creating the people they're talking about as a category of uh, far away from us and then speaking of them negatively. And we can fall into that trap very easily. Natalie speaks very effectively on God's heart for mercy, one of the themes that we emphasize in our ministry. The fourth point is particular keys Particular practical keys, and you may have come here thinking, right, it's the practicalities I'm interested in. Okay, well, we're getting there right now. Okay. One of the keys is to work out in the church, well, actually, what should we be doing and getting well organized? Now, you're probably well organized in your church, but you might not be well organized. You might be coming here thinking, actually, we need, we're, we're just at ground level. We're just starting out. We don't know how to do such and such. Well, ask a question in a minute if that's you. The first key is to get well-organized practically. That's ultimately the responsibility of the church leaders. They're gonna have, but they're going to have to delegate a lot of the functionality of that. Otherwise, things aren't likely to work well. So we need to know what we're doing. Can the people in your church say, yes, our church is committed to this project? Do they know that? Do they own it? Another key is we're not just helping people. We also need to learn an art, which I think is very important here, which is advocacy. There's a skill developing in the church at the moment when dealing with needy groups of not only responding to their immediate needs, but dealing with the interface between them and other agencies who need to collaborate in their care. And I'm really passionate about this advocacy. It's incredible what you can do when you sit down with people in authorities, housing, Job Center Plus, addiction services, NHS, doctors, whatever it might be. And mental health services, that's a really big one. Once you get to know them and start talking about people you're dealing with, 
Uh, we've seen some incredible things happen in our own church by just partnering with those because we have told the story from our point of view to them. We've learned ways of doing it. We've built relationships that and enable us to do that. You can ask me about that. And another key is not to forget evangelism. Have you noticed sometimes that social work and evangelism can get, social action evangelism can get divorced? Because the activists are so busy being activists that they're not necessarily witnessing. And the evangelists are so busy with students and alpha courses and um, other areas of uh, likely fruitfulness that they're not involved. Well, my answer to that is get as many evangelistically gifted people as you can involved in social action. Deploy them. Are you still with me? Okay. Is this making any sense? Good. I hope some pennies are dropping here and there. Some questions are arising. The fifth point is about the culture of our churches. Now, this is something that's becoming more and more prominent in discussion right now. So my basic thesis is this. Any local church has what you might call a main or central culture, which is represented by its corporate events, the way it runs things, what happens uh, in those events, and who does what, and what time priority is given, and what social relationships are represented by it, like, for example, Sunday morning meetings. And there's, there's a main culture, but there's also lots of subcultures, So in your church, there's a main culture, but people have their own subcultural preferences. Now, the example I normally give to illustrate this is the choice of worship songs. Right. Okay, so let me illustrate it from our church point of view. Our church has lots of teenagers who are all up with trendy music and the latest things from... Hillsong or Bethel or whatever. But our oldest member is 97 years old and she came last Sunday. And quite frankly, not a great deal of that stuff has much meaning for her and she can't hear most of it anyway. And in between those two extremes are people in my age bracket, middle age, let's say, who have a, a yearning and a memory for... Wesley hymns and mission praise and things that some of you haven't even heard of. Or the 90s in Stonely Bible Week. And we all go home and we all say, well, I, I didn't like that song. That, that's too modern. That's too loud. That's too, that's too this. That's too short. That hasn't got enough theology in. That's too experiential. That's too, etc. So what's going on in that situation? The main culture is interacting with subcultures. And the main culture has to represent those subcultures in some meaningful way so that every main subculture has at least some stake in the main culture. Otherwise, you fragment. Music is just a symbol of that, but it's a very deeply felt symbol. Now, apply that principle to... The socialization uh, experiences of 
your main congregation and people who are joining from a disadvantaged background. And we quickly begin to see some problem areas. What happens to the people who join your congregation but English is their second or third language? That's challenging. Are we just going to communicate in one language in our church? So that's a fundamental issue between the main culture and subcultures. What happens if for the first time in a white majority church is a whole group of Nigerians join? What happens if a whole series of food bank clients from your white working class backgrounds in your, in your town start expressing an interest in coming to church? Then you invite them to the Alpha course and they have no idea what it means socially to sit round in a circle and talk to each other and ask each other a question, what did you think about that talk? It's something they've never, ever, ever, ever done in their life. Is the Alpha course going to work for them in that form? Is it going to have to be modified? Now, I'm illustrating here the fact that our, the culture of our church, whatever culture you're in, you take it as the norm. You think, oh, this is just normal. Well, what it is, is merely an expression of the cultural elements that you've got at the time. But if you want to add in new elements, you're going to have to make room for that new social group that are joining. If they're joining in any numbers, uh, there's going to be some adaptation taking place. Does that make any sense to you? And so you have an issue. For example, in our church, we're currently thinking we can't really use the Alpha course with some of our uh, social action clients. So we're creating another parallel resource that I'll be working on in the autumn. We hope to trial next year. That would prioritize some of the socialization patterns of some of our clients and help them to feel engaged and deal with some of the vulnerabilities they might feel in that situation. Now, is this ringing in any bells with you? This is a big issue. Now, this is what I call the issue of culture. And my fundamental thesis is that until you realize that any church has a main culture and different subcultures, and until you analyze what those components are, you'll never be able to find any way of resolving the issue that certain people don't fit in and won't stay. Now, some people don't stay because of spiritual reasons or sin reasons or, or, or something else, but I'm talking about the inability of a whole social group, a whole social cohort, not to find any ownership in that main church community. This is something we've done quite a lot of work on, thinking about race, language, class, and also the more general category of social skills. It doesn't take you long when dealing, for example, with a food bank to realize that a lot of people are very fundamentally unskilled or de-skilled in fundamental social skills. And that is sometimes an even more important issue than the presenting short-term poverty caused by a benefits difficulty or an equivalent circumstance. But very few people are as yet really being strategic to think, how do we actually address this? We're trying to address it in our own church in a number of very specific ways. Two more things, then I'm going to hand over to Natalie to see whether she wants to make some comments. Then we'll come to you. Strategy. This is more a kind of a leader's perspective, and this is what I've noticed around the country. 
as people, churches have been, the general trend over the last decade has been much more social engagement, much more social connectedness, many more projects. That is the general trend of what is happening. But there are four different ways that people perceive this in the main that I can spot. Number one, this is the basic one. We're a church. We've decided to do social action. So we're going to run, shall we say, a cap center or a debt center. Or we're going to contribute to the local food bank. Or we're going to be getting right behind the local street pastors. Now that's your sort of basic position. And this position is local church plus project. Position number one, local church plus project. We're going to help some people. There's four positions. Second one, local church plus project plus telling people about Christ and witnessing to them. That's the second position. In other words, we're not just helping people, we're also going to Speak to them about Christ in whatever way is meaningful. Now, we know this is complicated in our culture in some ways. An example. Church I know runs teaching English as a second language for incoming ethnic communities. And they basically do the project, but they invite all their students to their carol service. And then to the Alpha course. Okay, so that's church, project, plus a bit of evangelism. Model number two. Church, project, plus a bit of evangelism. Much more radically is model number three, which is we're so involved. Some churches are so involved in a particular community that they're helping, social community or an ethnic community, that they feel, well, quite frankly, they're so different from the main church. We're going to have multiple congregations. We're going to create a congregation of out of this group because things are beginning to move here, but we really can't integrate them in the main church. So model three is multiple congregations. Here's an example. A friend of ours who's working in the Midlands in a different sphere, they have a main congregation and they've specialized in working with addicts, um, drug and alcohol addicts and recovering addicts. And they've had so much success with getting to these people and relating to them and praying for them, that they formed um, a separate congregation for them because they thought, well, these guys, they're not going to cope with a Sunday morning congregation because some of them come in after drinking and after taking drugs when they, they haven't really quit the habit and they're not used to all the behavior patterns of a Sunday morning. So they created a Friday evening congregation. Um, so, and then that very same church suddenly had an opportunity to work in a working class, white working class estate. So they created a, an estate congregation. They ended up with three congregations. So that's a more radical model with some pluses and minuses, of course. And the fourth model is that <coughs> if you see a geographical area that is significantly deprived <coughs> is you go and plant a church there from scratch. 
church planting in deprived areas. That's a fourth model. And characteristically, the mother church, so to speak, founding church, sending church, would give the resources. And you'd start somewhere to get closer to people, and you'd build a church there that is adapted to that culture, but it becomes a standalone church in time. Finally, now this is the big one, capacity. How much capacity have we got? What about the human resources? We can go a long way with volunteering, but there is a ceiling. There's an upper limit. There's a tolerance of the pressure of work at the top end that um, uh, becomes a ceiling for what you can do if you only have volunteers. And so, with human resources, there may come a time, as churches are intentional in this area, when they start paying people to be project workers. And that greatly increases capacity, generally, in my experience. The second area of resourcing that's important is financial resources. Where's the money going to come from? Have you had that conversation in your church? That's a big one. There have to be some quite radical decisions made about financial priorities if you're going to sustain social action projects over the long term. That involves trustees, that involves elders, and that involves the management of the financial structure. You have to develop financial resources. So there's human resources, financial resources, there's physical resources, which... Notably and specifically is about buildings. Are you in a church where you lack the uh, appropriate building resources for the things you want to do? That is a huge issue. But then it's also a huge opportunity to think, okay, we need to get that building. We need to, load, we need to lease that building. The council needs to give us that building or we need to collaborate with someone or we need to buy it or whatever it might be. And... I had an interesting experience not so long ago where I'd written something about this particular point in the book, A Church for the Poor. I received a phone call from a pastor, and he said to me, he was in a big church in a big city, and he said to me, Martin, I just need to talk to you. I've got your book uh, on my desk, and open at page such and such where I was talking about buildings. And my question was, does your building have any priority for the poor? And he said, I've got your book there, and I've got the architect's plans for remodeling the building next to them. And the architect's plans have no consideration in the remodeling, hundreds of thousands of pounds, for the poor. What are we going to do about it? So he's, on the, he's in a big city, the other end of a phone. He's got my book and he's got the architect's plans. Well, to cut a long story short, they went back to the architect and changed the plans. Because physical resources, and they created an area which uh, is now being developed where they could minister to particular groups. And finally, this is my very last point, and I'll hand over to Natalie to make a few comments. Finally comes the issue of spiritual resources. Social action is only sustained on the basis of vision and prayer. 
you need to know what your vision is. And there needs to be a prayer base. We've recently instituted in our church a prayer meeting for our social action projects. It takes place at 8 o'clock in the morning on every Wednesday. Only a modest number of people come, but it's a very, very intentional and often a powerful prayer meeting where we are week by week underwriting everything we're trying to do and the challenges in prayer. Folks, thanks for listening. Have you found that helpful? I hope so. I hope something's just a little bit useful for you. Now, before we invite some questions, I'd like Natalie just to come and just give her perspective um, and things she'd like to add. Good afternoon. Um, Yeah, I've just got a few thoughts on the back of what Martin said. We are very different people, but we work well together. We write together um, well some of the time, don't we? Um, And... But we do have vastly different backgrounds, not just in terms of upbringing. Um, you can probably tell just from the way I talk that I was brought up in a working class family um, in relative poverty. But also we have differences in that I've never led a church. So I probably would describe myself as an activist, um, although I'm on the leadership team of my local church and I oversee social action. Um, I'm much more of an activist. I'm someone who likes to push other people to do more than they're comfortable to do and I'd imagine some of you in the room are in that situation and sometimes the people we're pushing are the church leaders and all of us have church leaders like Martin who just lead on this care for the poor and they're doing it and they don't need anyone to kind of be annoying and keep banging on about it all the time Uh, most of us though probably are in churches yeah where that doesn't really happen so for me I think the um the biggest struggle I've had as someone who, like God has been working on my heart and making me care more about poverty and justice issues and do more, is the biggest struggle is managing my own heart. Because I get to talk a lot about the mercy of God towards the poorest, but sometimes the people I find it hardest to be merciful towards are Christians. Basically, the other Christians who don't care about the poor. Christians who think this is, well, that's all right for you, but I'm called to something else. You'd, I don't have to do it. So for me, managing my own heart has been one of the biggest difficulties, I'll be honest with you, and and continues to be, um, and has to be an absolute priority for me, because otherwise I'm going to get bitter, and I'm going to get cynical, and I'm going to get hard-hearted. And the people I'm going to get hard-hearted to are probably going to be church leaders and other Christians much more than anyone else. And so it's interesting, because I work really, really well with the lead elder in my church. He is a great guy, um, and really does have a heart for the poor. But he's been on a journey, and he put me on staff eight years ago, Um, And he would say, if he was here very openly back then, if you told him he would be leading a church that is in the process of spending hundreds and thousands of pounds on restructuring our building, Uh, we're not the same church Martin was talking about, but we're restructuring our building specifically to have a community action hub where the poorest and the most vulnerable in our community can be served. If you told him that eight years ago, he'd have said, that won't be me. If that happens in this church, I'll have had to move on. But actually, God has done so much in his heart over the last eight years. But what's been difficult, I think, for him and for me is working together. Because he would say, and has said publicly, so it's okay to repeat it, that I probably am the most frustrating member of his team for him. Um, I mean, he frustrates me too, so, you know, it's okay. But it's like that, isn't it? For those of you who are activists, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about, right? Where you are constantly saying to your church leaders or anyone who will listen in your church, we need to be doing more. Care for the poor needs to be central to everything we're doing. It's not a sideshow. It's not an optional extra. This needs to be in the heart of our church. And you're probably being met with, yeah, yeah, okay, well, you know, we'll have to think about that. Or, you know, you just keep doing what you're doing and, you know, we'll, you know, pray for you. And you're... 
so it's frustrating, isn't it? It's hard because your own heart can be like, you're not getting it. And I think one of the things God said to me years ago was that my primary um, call in terms of relating to the leaders of my church has to be to pray for them. Like not to just try and batter them all the time. Well, there's a place for, you know, persuasion. Um, but to actually making sure, be making sure I'm always praying for their hearts. And I think actually, if we're honest, a lot of us don't do that. A lot of us will go and complain and um, argue with them and try and be as persuasive as we can without ever actually praying, will God bring revelation to them? Because if you care, you know, if God really cares about the poor, which we believe he does, then our church leaders cannot thwart the purposes of God for our communities. If they're open and they're listening to God, then obviously he can speak into them and can change their hearts. And my church leader would say that's something that's happened to him over the last few years, that he has um, had increasing revelation and increasing depth of revelation, that this is central. And if you'd said to me eight years ago when I started this kind of journey of nagging him a lot, that he would ever put care for the poor as one of the key three things we do as a church in our vision statement, I wouldn't have believed you. I wouldn't have had faith for that. I was praying for him, but I didn't necessarily believe we'd get to that place. And it is now in the vision statement of our church. We, we go on mission, we make disciples, and we care for the poor. And I'd have never guessed that he would have put it, I wouldn't have imagined that it would have been up there with those two other things, which you know we kind of think of their core business of church. Actually, care for the poor's core business of church too. So I'd say pray for your leaders, but also manage your own heart in it because if you're not constantly going back to God saying God this is frustrating for me this is annoying for me maybe I'm going to leave this church maybe I'll go to another church or maybe I'll um I've had people come up to me and say I'm going to tell my leaders you've got to come and speak in our church if your leaders don't want one of us to come and speak in your church that's probably not going to actually help you in in any way so it's it's about just managing your own heart and then just being patient and faithful and knowing that God is more concerned about this than any of us are so actually he will do more than any of us can do um like I say there is obviously a place for persuasion as well and I've worked quite hard on that part of it as well um another thing I thought just as um Martin was talking is is about the subculture of the working class which I know obviously Martin's referred to a lot but as someone who got saved from a working class background into a middle class church I think if you're here and you are middle class, don't underestimate how many things you'll do differently to the working classes. So I've got a friend who um, is middle class and in, um, involved in church leadership. And they had a working class couple get saved, start joining their church. And the leadership couple, my friend and her husband, went up and said to them, um, would you like to come for dinner on Wednesday night? And their response was, why, what have we done? Because I tell you what, like, I never, ever saw my parents or any of my friends' parents go out for dinner in the middle of the week when I was a kid. That is just a weird behaviour. I, I, I genuinely, I still find it... I do it now, but I find it a bit odd because it's just, it's just not something that would ever happen in my family. And so trying to think through, particularly as the majority culture, which in many of our churches, the middle classes are the majority, the onus isn't on the working classes to come in and then conform to our image. The onus is on the middle class to create space and value the working classes and just because they're different or they do things differently doesn't mean they do things wrong it just means you're set in your tradition and they're set in theirs and if you're the majority then you're the ones you've got to compromise is my thinking on it it's a bit forceful sorry but it's just what I think about it um 
Martin mentioned that we need other gifts around us as activists, and he mentioned specifically evangelists. I would want to add to that, we need pastoral people involved in social action. Because I don't know if this has happened to you, but if you're leading a project or you're kind of the care for the poor person in your church or one of the people, then what happens is when someone gets saved through one of your projects, you're expected to pastor them. You're expected to take care of them. Well, people who have the sort of personality type and gift mix that leads them to be an activist, in my experience, rarely also have a pastoral gifting. So I'm an activist. I can get a project off the ground. I can get something up and running. I can make something that's not working flourish for a couple of years. But if you want me to walk a journey with someone for 20 years, I'm not as good at that. It's just not, you know, there are some people I can do that with if there's a connection and we're friends. But if you just kind of assign random people who I've got no connection with to me, then that's probably not going to work for them or for me. What I need is there are amazing people in my church who are faithful pastoral people who want to walk a journey with someone and they're prepared to do it for 20 years, weekly meetings, if, if that's what the person needs. And to see the slow, often painful process of sanctification in someone's life. I'm not like that. I want to see everything right now. I'm like, you know, quick fix. I want, I want it all done today. I want it all done yesterday, actually, a lot of the time. So it's about recognizing. It's not giving us an excuse. It's not that I don't walk alongside anyone. Obviously, I've got people that I'm mentoring that. But it is working out what, what has God put in me? How has he made me personality and gift-wise? And what am I lacking so that I don't just try and become better at the things I'm pretty rubbish at? There's a place for that, but there's also a place for saying, all you guys over here are really, really gifted at what I'm not gifted at, so much better for us to work in team than me to try and do it all on my own. And I think pastoral people in the church are massively um, underappreciated because most of what they do is behind the scenes, and it is just faithful, faithful. I think of a guy in my church who passed away recently, and when he, when he died... All these people I'd have never imagined would talked about how, yeah, when I first became a Christian for five years, he met with me once a month or he met with me once a week. And these are people I was like, I didn't even know you even knew each other. I'd never even seen them speak to each other. But he'd just behind the scenes been faithfully walking with some of the most troubled um, and some of the people in church who caused the most trouble over years and years and years. And that was a story when he died that all these people, dozens and dozens of people, talked about how he'd invested in their lives and that's what held them in the church. And some of these people were held in the church despite things like, I've got a friend who is a single mum. She tells me that she, she reckons it's a conservative estimate that at least six people have asked her this question, which is, she's a single mum, three kids. Since you've been in the church, do all your kids have the same dad? It's pretty shocking, isn't it? Like, and she, she credits this guy with basically holding her in the church through conversations like that and says if he hadn't actually just walked faithfully alongside her, discipling her patiently and being ridiculously patient with her in the same way that God is ridiculously patient with us, then she probably wouldn't have stayed in the church because she'd have been so offended all the time. And I think on that note, I would say one of the things we like is quick fixed answers, don't we? We want the testimony of someone who got prayed for and was instantly delivered, instantly healed, but... I just don't think that's how God works most of the time. Like, he does obviously have those massive, powerful breakthrough moments. But I think all of us in this room will know that there's areas of our lives that God's been working on for years. If you've been a Christian any length of time, I don't think anyone in the room would say, yeah, God sorted me out on day one and I've been fine ever since. And if you have, then please pray for me. 
But you know what I mean? So we, we're in a quick fix culture where everything, um, you, you can get it instantly. If you want fame, you just go on a, celeb- a TV show or whatever and you get your moment of fame. If you, if you want um, healing in some way, you go and you see someone and it's, done, and it's done and it's accomplished. I'm talking about more emotional, mental health. But actually, the way God works is patient and gentle and kind. And we need to get better, I think, myself very much included in this, at not expecting people to be transformed overnight. So I've got a friend in the church and she was telling me the other day um, about how she bumped into someone in a shop and um, I don't know what this woman was doing but it was something that offended my friend my friend's a Christian she's been a Christian for about 10 years and she's like so I got up in her face and I said to her you need to effing stop doing what you're doing and I said to my friend oh oh um, you really showed her mercy then it's a bit of a joke because my friend and I talk about the mercy of God all the time and and what it's like to be working class in the church and and so I said oh you really showed mercy then she went well I didn't rob her and you know what, it's funny to most of us, but actually, as soon as she said that, I thought, you've been on a journey. You have, because 10 years ago, that is what she would have done. So for her, actually, yeah, she doesn't look like the nice, polite, middle-class Christians that most of us are interacting with all the time. But she has actually had amazing transformation, but it's been slow, and she's still on a journey. And I might go, oh, that's not okay, and you need to not swear, and you need to not do this, and you, you know... But actually, that would be totally um, undervaluing and underappreciating the massive work that God's already done in her life to get her to the place where she is now. Now, of course, she needs discipleship, don't we all, you know, to go further. But actually, there is a place for us to just appreciate what God is doing in someone's life and not expect them to look like a nice, polite, middle-class Christian, you know, within five minutes of getting saved. Because I've been saved 25 years and I still don't look like a polite, middle-class Christian. So, you know... I just don't think it's the way God works a lot of the time. So that's just a few of my thoughts. I want to leave plenty of time for um, Q&A. So. Great. Thank you very much. Okay, folks, um, you've heard two voices. You've heard lots of ideas and lots of thoughts. Now we've got time for some questions. Natalie's got the microphone. She'll come to you because we're recording this. So if anybody's got any question you'd like to ask, please just indicate. Yes. Let's take this one. Um, Sometimes I find myself having conversation with church leadership around the whole issue of, so let's just say it's a night shelter project, something like that for the homeless that you think we should be getting behind as a church. Uh, And I often find myself in conversations about, well, we don't want to enable the addictions. We don't want to enable the homelessness. So therefore, we don't think we should be really jumping into this project. And that's quite a difficult discussion to have. Have you got any thoughts around that whole discussion about whether we're enabling the problem further by helping? We're both looking at each other, thinking who wants to answer that? Yeah, I mean, obviously, we have those conversations all the time. I think um, a couple of things. Firstly, I think often that's an excuse for inactivity, if I'm honest. I think that we find whatever reason we can to not do what God's called us to do a lot of the time. And so I think there's that. I think there is a legitimate part to the question, though, which is, you know, are we creating a dependency? And I think it really is important for us as churches to look at not just doing crisis support. We can't just... Well, we can, but we'll be doing it forever. So actually, it's important for us to start thinking, well, what can we do a bit more strategically, a bit more thought through that doesn't just help people um, stay in their situation? And by help people, I mean, there are some people who like 
want to stay in this situation and there's some people who want to get out but but can't so we need to be thinking you know if you run a food bank for example how are we not just going to keep helping the same people over and over again how are we going to give them longer term support yeah go on uh, so an example um, from our own church experience and this is not to do with housing but it's to do with food banks but it's the same principle as what you're talking about so one of the difficulties with food banks for example is that it's like having just an A&E department in the hospital. You know, you've got your crisis intervention, but people go away um, with many, many fundamental problems which then recur. You can't, f an A&E department cannot function without the interrelationship with other medical disciplines and resources. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, um, what we decided to do with Food Bank in our own church is to create um, life skills resources to help people. We created a cookery course, we created a back-to-work job club, we created a drop-in, we've created a walking group, we've created a gardening group, we're trying to create a, a woodworking group, so that you're getting alongside people and helping them with establishing basic skills that are obviously lying behind the presenting problems. So I think um, if, you, if you have the same thinking concerning housing, I think housing, um, if we get involved in housing, we do have to think about mental health, we do have to think about addictions and a few other things, and we have to work out you know, what initiatives in those areas could go alongside emergency housing, for example. And I guess you're back to advocacy now, right? So we're back to advocacy, we're back to partnership, we're back to getting specialist skills, and we're back to the more general thing about creating community that can bring life skills. Now, this is, a, this is an emerging narrative in, in all the church's social action projects because most of them are based on crisis intervention. And that really floats the boat of people initially think, yeah, great, we've fed this many people, we've given death advice to this many people, we've rescued these many people off the streets on a Saturday night through street pastors. But actually, there's far more systemic questions and far more fundamental questions which are now coming over the horizon and we're having to think more strategically about them. So I would say that, and our experience running a food bank is the therapeutic effect of creating a sort of a community for people that they can join with different projects is incredibly powerful. Um, but you've really got to play the long game. You're often working with people for years and they'll often drop off the radar and come back on again and you get all those variations. But you've got, a, you've got an infrastructure in a community that can support that. So that's a question. Yeah. Just a, um, it's a capacity issue question, really, yes. and skills one. So um, based on the west coast of Cumbria, they deprived, yes. uh, planted a church there. Um, we, we're in a position, it's been a journey, like you said, a, a very long journey, where people have really um, caught God's heart for people, if I'm honest, and it's changed the culture and stuff like that. So that's been very powerful. Um, and during that time, um, obviously, we set up the normal sort of stuff, food bank, debt counselling, food, all, all that, meals, all that kind of stuff. But the challenge that we've had is, um, because we've changed the culture of how we do Sundays, um, and it's all now become about belonging, loving, acceptance, significance of people. It's just trying to scrap all the other stuff. We're now getting quite a lot of people coming. 
uh, from deprived areas, so quite large numbers. And they're getting saved, which is brilliant. We're sort of seeing miracles, and, and people are just... Which is fantastic. So you've now got Sunday mornings where you've got people on their knees swearing quite regularly, sort of effing God, thank you for this, and in tears, which is obviously amazing. But the problem we've got <laughs> is now, because we sometimes might get 15, 20 of people like that, it's, it's the life skills, it's a lot of these people, yeah, they've met God, but they're suicidal, they're, I mean, they're juggling, you know, impossible situations, and it's the capacity. And so, I mean, I've, I've taken time off work to try and be available, but we just can't... <laughs> Okay, so um, let me just say a few things about this. This is a journey of faith. So, and it's a very, very challenging journey. So you've taken a high-risk approach, um, which is good. Um, And we have to believe for miracles and pray for miracles. So one thing that I've done over the years in church leadership is pray for people to join the church who can add in the skill sets that we're missing. Often no one knows those prayers, you know. Um, not even the people who arrive, but I think, aha, that's the right person. So um, I think we need to pray for, for, for that. We also need to envision our more stable church members or more established church members as to what it really means to be part of that church and what they can give to that process. And also, I think, if you're a leader in the church, which you are, aren't you? Um, are you actually leading the team? Well, you were. So the sort of skills we need are the activist, project, project leader type person that takes the responsibility away from the senior team. And we need to pray for those sort of people to, to emerge. Another thing to say is that actually... If for, for, for a pioneer church like that to have strategic partners of other churches that are investing in you is another way of bringing resource in, people, finance, skills, into, into the situation. What would you add? Uh, yeah, I think the, the envisioning of maybe existing members and even trying to make it clear that we should all be friends with people who aren't like us. We should all be looking to have two-way discipleship relationships. So it's not actually about one group doing something to the other. It's about what we can learn um, and what we can exchange between each other in a more like, um, it's not a biblical word, but like buddying kind of system. So I think that's helpful. I think secondly, um, I would say you want to be looking for who are the leaders among your um, people who are more vulnerable. I don't know how to put them, you know, the, the swearers, as you said, or whatever. Um, who are the leaders among them? Who actually can you start bringing through into positions of leadership, which might look very, very different from your leadership or Martin's leadership? Yeah, I mean, that's amazing. Yeah. So, no, but I think, so we've had a woman on our leadership. Yeah. So, yeah. so, so bringing, bringing, yeah, finding leadership in people who don't look automatically about like your kind of emerging middle-class leaders, but they may, might have the gift of leadership. And we have to have faith for the longer-term journey, maybe for kind of social, social transform, personal transformation because of the background. But the leadership capacity can be absolutely dynamic once it's actually developed, and it needs to be invested in. Can I make another point, just very quickly, by, by giving you an example about the, uh, the sort of stable core members? So 
I recently preached at a church which isn't part of our network um, in the city of Birmingham, which is on a very, very deprived estate, and it was planted from scratch by a very visionary couple who came from a very middle-class Anglican church. And when I went into that church to speak, it was filled with all sorts of different people in different social need and so on. And then I spoke to the guy who was running the sound and the projector. And I said, tell me about yourself. And he was a very, very steady middle-class guy. And he said, my job is to help the leader. I've moved churches from the other church out of my comfort zone. I've come to this church to do all the practical things so they can get on with the people work. And every week he's there doing the projector, doing the sound. He's got a vision. He's not necessarily skilled with some of those social issues, but he is absolutely critical to the function of that church because he is committed to give his skills quietly in the background so that the front guys can get on with the human issues which are challenging. Another question. Before that, can I just add something? Oh, sorry, in the leadership. Yeah. In terms of bringing free p- people through into leadership, although you want to look at what's biblical and what's godly in terms of behaviour, don't try and make them look like you or the rest of your leaders. Because I think that is a key mistake that we make, is that we see turning someone into like a nice, polite, middle-class person as discipleship rather than just being a disciple of Jesus. And I've had that issue. Like I said, I've been saved about 25 years. And I would say until five years ago, people have always said, we're not sure if you're a leader or not. And that's been all right, because I was like, I don't really care. But it's been a weird thing to have to keep having those conversations um, about are you a leader or not, just because I look nothing like... I'm not like a nice cookie-cutter leader. Um, and I think we need to embrace that and we need to recognise that our model of leadership isn't the best one, it is just one. And that other people have different models. So that's really important. And also just to say, make sure you're not, um, you know, kind of ignoring all the other good work that happens in your community. There will be um, statutory agencies and charities that are doing amazing work. And they may not be Christians because we don't have the monopoly on good works. And so working with them, so you're not trying to do something on your own and help people when actually there's someone much more skilled than you just down the road who's been doing it for 50 years, when you could be partnering with them, supporting what they're doing, blessing what they're doing, and that'll actually speak volumes to them that the church wants to bless their charity or their work rather than just do it themselves as well. One more question, last one, and then we'll finish. We're just going to go slightly over three o'clock. Is there anyone else who... Aha, Faye at the back. Yeah. Um, it's a question about disappointment. Um, yes. I, can, I can think back over time and, and um, remember different scenarios where people have had an awful lot of an investment. Um, people have given themselves to, to yes. helping people and then, um, and then they've not really carried on that journey themselves and kind of fallen away. So I'm wondering if you can make some comments on dealing with disappointment. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I'll answer that initially. Um, We had a project in our church some years ago helping people recovering from addictions, uh, particularly drug addiction. And here are a few outcomes. Um, One guy uh, looked as though he was making real progress, but his body wasn't able to sustain a normal life, and he just dropped dead one day. Another guy looked as though he'd been converted, but still had criminal intentions, and one day broke into our church building, broke into my office, Uh, beat the door down with a crowbar, got into my filing cabinet with a crowbar, 
and he put four crowbar marks on each of the four drawers and um, ended up in prison. And the pastoral question is, how, how are we going to enjoy visiting him in prison? Okay, I've still got the um, filing cabinet with the crowbar marks on it to remind me um, that he's still worthy of love and we gave him love even though he tried to uh, take us to the cleaners and he didn't really find salvation. In the same group was another guy who's now come through many multiple addictions and is now on the front line of church planting and evangelism. So there's a lot of disappointment Faye, on one side and there's a lot of excitement on the other. And to be really honest, that is how it is. That's what I expect. Because I know that even our Lord Jesus had to face that same emotion of disappointment because his unbelievably gracious gifts of healing and mercy towards countless thousands of people were not rewarded by loyal discipleship and belief in his messianic status on the part of the majority by all accounts. So we have to actually face the fact that we love people without that love being dependent on them rewarding us. We're doing it for God because we love him. And if we enter into mature and wonderful relationships of friendship with people who've been redeemed from difficult circumstances, that is fantastic, but it's not a guaranteed outcome. Disappointment is real. It needs to be talked about. It must not be brushed under the carpet. And tears sometimes have to be shed. The cost has to be accounted for. We need to pray and encourage each other. It is part of the journey. Um, but it's always been part of the journey of the Christian faith. And it's similar to the journey of the evangelist and the person who knocks on doors and 99 out of 100 don't respond um, and so on. So that is part of the journey. A final comment on this from Natalie and then we'll end our seminar. Anything to add? Yeah, I just I think um, for me it's a few things to remember. One is to try and be conscious of what does God ask you to do, which bit's your responsibility and which bit you have no power over. We actually cannot change people's hearts. That's something only God can do. So we have to be mindful of that. We have to go into it knowing that actually God does the work on the inside. All we can really do is help with most of the stuff that's kind of on the outside and some of the stuff on the inside. But that really is the work of the Holy Spirit, not mine or yours. And so, again, just bearing in mind that prayer is actually the most important thing we can do for anyone. It really is. And that's not doesn't get us off the hook from the practical support, but it mustn't. Um, just be thrown out the window if we think, well, I'm practically helping someone. I think also it is remembering that we don't know the end from the beginning. Like God's the one who sees someone's journey. And most of us probably in this room, if we um, did a timeline of when we've been really on fire for God and when we've been really lukewarm or worse, um, most of us, that would be an up and down line, wouldn't it? It wouldn't just be a constant. I mean, maybe some of you are much more godly than I am, but mine isn't a constant line mine's a line full of ups and downs and so I don't know why we expect anything different from the people that we're helping so I think that's that's really important and I think again it comes back to managing our own hearts and constantly coming back to God and saying this is hurting my heart right now but God I need you to help me be more merciful than I would naturally be
if left to my own devices, I might want to write this person off now. But you don't give me that option because you've never written me off. But that, if I'm going to do it, God, I need your help. I cannot do it on my own. So I think a heavy, heavy reliance on the Holy Spirit and praying and recognizing what's God's work and recognizing what God sees that we don't see, all of those things. I mean, basically, it is about we don't look at the person in front of us. We look at Jesus Christ. And that ultimately has to be where we go. If we take our eyes off Jesus and start looking at the people around us, we will give up. We've got to keep our eyes fixed on him. Thank you for the question. I hope that was helpful. And thank you for being here. We're going to end there. Really appreciate you coming. Look forward to seeing you later. Enjoy the rest of the day.